Welcome to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This Week in Medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, this week in medicine, we will be discussing. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine. Inhibition of CD40L with Frexalimab and Multiple Sclerosis. Background. The CD40-CD40L costimulatory pathway regulates adaptive and innate immune responses and has been implicated in the pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis. Frexalimab is a second-generation anti-CD40L monoclonal antibody being evaluated for the treatment of multiple sclerosis. Background. The CD40-CD40L costimulatory pathway regulates adaptive and innate immune responses and has been implicated in the pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis. Frexalimab is a second-generation anti-CD40L monoclonal antibody being evaluated for the treatment of multiple sclerosis. Methods In this phase 2, double-blind, randomized trial, we assigned, in a 4 to 4 colon 1 to 1 ratio, participants with relapsing multiple sclerosis to receive 1,200 mg of Frexalimab administered intravenously every 4 weeks, within 1,800 mg loading dose, 300 mg of Frexalimab administered subcutaneously every two weeks, with a 600 mg loading dose, or the matching placebos for each active treatment. The primary endpoint was the number of new gadolinium-enhancing T1-weighted lesions seen on magnetic resonance imaging at week 12 relative to week 8. Secondary endpoints included the number of new or enlarging T2-weighted lesions at week 12 relative to week 8, the total number of gadolinium-enhancing T1-weighted lesions at week 12, and safety. After 12 weeks, all the participants could receive open-label Frexalimab. Results Of 166 participants screened, 129 were assigned to a trial group, 125 participants, 97%, completed the 12-week double-blind period. The mean age of the participants was 36.6 years, 66% were women, and 30% had gadolinium-enhancing lesions at baseline. At week 12, the adjusted mean number of new gadolinium-enhancing T1-weighted lesions was 0.2, 95% confidence interval, c, 0.1 to 0.4, in the group that received 1,200 mg of Frexalimab intravenously and 0.3, 95% c, 0.1 to 0.6, in the group that received 300 mg of Frexalimab subcutaneously, as compared with 1.4, 95% C, 0.6 to 3.0 in the pooled placebo group. The rate ratios as compared with placebo were 0.11, 95% C, 0.03 to 0.38 in the 1,200 mg group and 0.21, 95% C, 0.08 to 0.56 in the 300 mg group. 
Results for the secondary imaging endpoints were generally in the same direction as those for the primary analysis. The most common adverse events were coronavirus disease 2019 and headaches. Conclusions In a phase 2 trial involving participants with multiple sclerosis, inhibition of CD40L with frexalimab had an effect that generally favored a greater reduction in the number of new gadolinium-enhancing T1-weighted lesions at week 12 as compared with placebo. Larger and longer trials are needed to determine the long-term efficacy and safety of frexalimab in persons with multiple sclerosis. Electronic Nicotine Delivery Systems for Smoking Cessation Background Electronic Nicotine Delivery Systems, also called e-cigarettes, are used by some tobacco smokers to assist with quitting. Evidence regarding the efficacy and safety of these systems is needed. Methods In this open-label, controlled trial, we randomly assigned adults who were smoking at least five tobacco cigarettes per day and who wanted to set a quit date to an intervention group, which received free e-cigarettes and e-liquids, standard-of-care smoking cessation counseling and optional, not free, nicotine replacement therapy, or to a control group, which received standard counseling and a voucher, which they could use for any purpose, including nicotine replacement therapy. The primary outcome was biochemically validated, continuous abstinence from smoking at six months. Secondary outcomes included participant-reported abstinence from tobacco and from any nicotine, including smoking, e-cigarettes, and nicotine replacement therapy, at six months, respiratory symptoms, and serious adverse events. Results A total of 1,246 participants underwent randomization, 622 participants were assigned to the intervention group, and 624 to the control group. The percentage of participants with validated continuous abstinence from tobacco smoking was 28.9% in the intervention group and 16.3% in the control group, relative risk, 1.77, 95% confidence interval, 1.43 to 2.20. The percentage of participants who abstained from smoking in the seven days before the six-month visit was 59.6% in the intervention group and 38.5% in the control group but the percentage who abstained from any nicotine use was 20.1% in the intervention group and 33.7% in the control group. Serious adverse events occurred in 25 participants, 4.0%, in the intervention group and in 31, 5.0%, in the control group. Adverse events occurred in 272 participants, 43.7%, and 229 participants, 36.7%, respectively. Conclusions The addition of e-cigarettes to standard smoking cessation counseling resulted in greater abstinence from tobacco use among smokers than smoking cessation counseling alone. Cefepime tanabrabactam in complicated urinary tract infection Background Carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriales species and multidrug-resistant Pseudomonas aeruginosa are global health threats. Cefepime tanabrabactam is an investigational beta-lactam and beta-lactamus inhibitor combination with activity against Enterobacteriales species and P. aeruginosa expressing serine and metallo-beta-lactamuses. Methods In this phase 3, double-blind, randomized trial, 
we assign hospitalized adults with complicated urinary tract infection, UTI, including acute pyelonephritis, in a 2 to 1 ratio to receive intravenous cefepime tanabrabactam, 2.5 grams, or meripenem, 1 gram, every 8 hours for 7 days. This duration could be extended up to 14 days in case of bacteremia. The primary outcome was both microbiologic and clinical success, composite success, on trial days 19 to 23 in the microbiologic intention to treat, microit, population, patients who had a qualifying gram-negative pathogen against which both study drugs were active. A pre-specified superiority analysis of the primary outcome was performed after confirmation of non-inferiority. Results Of the 661 patients who underwent randomization, 436, 66.0%, were included in the microit population. The mean age of the patients was 56.2 years, and 38.1% were 65 years of age or older. In the microit population, 57.8% of the patients had complicated UTI, 42.2% had acute pyelonephritis, and 13.1% had bacteremia. Composite success occurred in 207 of 293 patients, 70.6%, in the cefepime tanabrabactam group and in 83 of 143 patients, 58.0%, in the meripenem group. Cefepime tanabrabactam was superior to meripenem regarding the primary outcome, treatment difference, 12.6 percentage points, 95% confidence interval, 3.1 to 22.2, p equals 0.009. Differences in treatment response were sustained at late follow-up, trial days 28 to 35, when cefepime tanabrabactam had higher composite success and clinical success. Adverse events occurred in 35.5% and 29.0% of patients in the cefepime tanabrabactam group and the meripenem group, respectively, with headache, diarrhea, constipation, hypertension, and nausea the most frequently reported. The frequency of serious adverse events was similar in the two groups. Conclusions Cefepime tanabrabactam was superior to meripenem for the treatment of complicated UTI that included acute pyelonephritis, with a safety profile similar to that of meripenem. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association. Mass azithromycin distribution to prevent child mortality in Burkina Faso. The CHAT randomized clinical trial. Importance repeated mass distribution of azithromycin has been shown to reduce childhood mortality by 14% in sub-Saharan Africa. However, the estimated effect varied by location, suggesting that the intervention may not be effective in different geographical areas, time periods, or conditions. Objective to evaluate the efficacy of twice-yearly azithromycin to reduce mortality in children in the presence of seasonal malaria chemoprevention. Design, Setting, and Participants This cluster randomized placebo-controlled trial evaluating the efficacy of single-dose azithromycin for prevention of all-cause childhood mortality included 341 communities in the Nauna district in rural northwestern Burkina Faso. Participants were children aged 1 to 59 months living in the study communities. Interventions communities were randomized in a 1 to 1 ratio to receive oral azithromycin or placebo distribution. Children aged 1 to 59 months were offered single-dose treatment twice yearly for three years, six distributions, from August 2019 to February 2023. 
main outcomes and measures the primary outcome was all-cause childhood mortality, measured during a twice-yearly enumerative census. Results a total of 34,399 children, mean, SD, age, 25.2,18, months, in the azithromycin group and 33,847 children, mean, SD, age, 25.6,18, months, in the placebo group were included. A mean, SD, of 90.1%, 16.0%, of the census children received the scheduled study drug in the azithromycin group, and 89.8%, 17.1%, received the scheduled study drug in the placebo group. In the azithromycin group, 498 deaths were recorded over 6,592 person years, 8.2 deaths slash 1,000 person years. In the placebo group, 588 deaths were recorded over 58,547 person years, 10.0 deaths slash 1,000 person years. The incidence rate ratio for mortality was 0.82, 95% C, 0.67 to 1.02, P equals 0.07, in the azithromycin group compared with the placebo group. The incidence rate ratio was 0.99, 95% C, 0.72 to 1.36, in those aged 1 to 11 months, 0.92, 95% C, 0.67 to 1.27, in those aged 12 to 23 months, and 0.73, 95% C, 0.57 to 0.94, in those aged 24 to 59 months. Conclusions and relevance mortality in children, aged 1 to 59 months, was lower with biannual mass azithromycin distribution in a setting in which seasonal malaria chemo prevention was also being distributed, but the difference was not statistically significant. The study may have been underpowered to detect a clinically relevant difference. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine. Surgery, needle fasciotomy, or collagenase injection for dupuytren contracture. A randomized controlled trial. Background. Surgery, needle fasciotomy, and collagenase injection are used to treat dupuytren contracture. The treatment decision requires balancing initial morbidity and costs of surgery against its potential long-term benefits over needle fasciotomy and collagenase. Objective. To compare the effectiveness of surgery, needle fasciotomy, and collagenase injection at 3 months and 2 years, secondary time points of the trial. Design. A multi-center, randomized, outcome assessor-blinded, Superiority Trial. Clinicaltrials.gov, NCT 0319202 setting. Six public hospitals in Finland. Participants. 302 persons with treatment-naive dupuytren contracture, contracture ankle less than 135 degrees. Intervention. Surgery, N equals 101, needle fasciotomy, N equals 101 or collagenase, N equals 100. Measurements. The primary outcome was the success rate, defined as greater than 50% contracture release in patients reaching the patient-acceptable symptom state. Secondary outcomes included hand function, pain, quality of life, patient satisfaction, residual contracture angle, finger flexion, risk for retreatment, and serious adverse events. Results A total of 292, 97%, and 284, 94%, Participants completed the three-month and two-year follow-ups. 
Success rates were similar at three months, 71%, 95% C, 62% to 80% for surgery, 73%, C, 64% to 82% for needle fasciotomy, and 73%, C, 64% to 82% for collagenase. At two years, surgery had superior success rates compared with both needle fasciotomy, 78% versus 50%, adjusted risk difference, ARD, 0.30, C, 0.17 to 0.43, and collagenase, 78% versus 65%, ARD, 0.13, C, 0.01 to 0.26. Secondary analyzes paralleled with the primary analysis. Limitation. Participants were not blinded. Conclusion. Initial outcomes are similar between the treatments, but at two-year success rates were maintained in the surgery group but were lower with both needle fasciotomy and collagenase despite retreatments. Next article from Nature Medicine. Effectiveness and safety of telehealth medication abortion in the USA Telehealth abortion has become critical to addressing surges in demand in states where abortion remains legal but evidence on its effectiveness and safety is limited. California Home Abortion by Telehealth, CHAT, is a prospective study that follows pregnant people who obtained medication abortion via telehealth from three virtual clinics operating in 20 states and Washington, D.C. between April 2021 and January 2022. Individuals were screened using a standardized no-test protocol, primarily relying on their medical history to assess medical eligibility. We assessed effectiveness, defined as complete abortion after 200 mg mifepristone and 1,600 microgram misoprostol, or lower, without additional intervention, safety was measured by the absence of serious adverse events. We estimated rates using multivariable logistic regression and multiple imputation to account for missing data. Among 6,034 abortions, 97.7%, 95% confidence interval, C, equals 97.2 to 98.1%, were complete without subsequent known intervention or ongoing pregnancy after the initial treatment. Overall, 99.8%, 99.6 to 99.9% of abortions were not followed by serious adverse events. In total, 0.25% of patients experienced a serious abortion-related adverse event, 0.16% were treated for an ectopic pregnancy and 1.3% abortions were followed by emergency department visits. There were no differences in effectiveness or safety between synchronous and asynchronous models of care. Telehealth medication abortion is effective, safe and comparable to published rates of in-person medication abortion care. Next article from British Medical Journal. Effective Exercise for Depression, Systematic Review and Network Meta-Analysis of Randomized Controlled Trials. Objective to identify the optimal dose and modality of exercise for treating major depressive disorder, compared with psychotherapy, antidepressants, and control conditions. Design Systematic Review and Network Meta-Analysis. Method Screening, Data Extraction, Coding, and risk of bias assessment were performed independently and duplicate. Bayesian arm-based, multi-level network meta-analyses were performed for the primary analyses. 
quality of the evidence for each arm was graded using the Confidence in Network Meta-Analysis, Cinema, online tool. Data sources Cochrane Library, Medline, Embase, Sport Discus, and PsycInfo databases. Eligibility criteria for selecting studies Any randomized trial with exercise arms for participants meeting clinical cutoffs for major depression. Results 218 unique studies with a total of 495 arms and 14170 participants were included. Compared with active controls, e.g., usual care, placebo tablet, moderate reductions in depression were found for walking or jogging, N equals 1210, kappa equals 51, hedges G minus 0.62, 95% credible interval minus 0.80 to minus 0.45, Yoga N equals 1047, Kappa equals 33, G minus 0.55, minus 0.73 to minus 0.36, Strength Training, N equals 643, Kappa equals 22, G minus 0.49, minus 0.69 to minus 0.29, Mixed Aerobic Exercises, N equals 1286, Kappa equals 51, G minus 0.43, minus 0.61 to minus 0.24, and Tai Chi or Qigong, N equals 343, Kappa equals 12, G minus 0.42, minus 0.65 to minus 0.21. The effects of exercise were proportional to the intensity prescribed. Strength training and yoga appeared to be the most acceptable modalities. Results appeared robust to publication bias, but only one study met the Cochrane criteria for low risk of bias. As a result, confidence in accordance with cinema was low for walking or jogging and very low for other treatments. Conclusions Exercise is an effective treatment for depression, with walking or jogging, yoga, and strength training more effective than other exercises, particularly when intense. Yoga and strength training were well tolerated compared with other treatments. Exercise appeared equally effective for people with and without comorbidities and with different baseline levels of depression. To mitigate expectancy effects, future studies could aim to blind participants and staff. These forms of exercise could be considered alongside psychotherapy and antidepressants as core treatments for depression. Next article from Lancet Chemo prevention for malaria with monthly intermittent preventive treatment with dihydroartemisin and piperquine in pregnant women living with HIV on daily co-trimoxazole in Kenya and Malawi, a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. Background The efficacy of daily co-trimoxazole, an antifolate used for malaria chemo prevention in pregnant women living with HIV, is threatened by cross-resistance of plasmodium falciparum to the antifolate sulfadoxine pyrimethamine. We assess whether addition of monthly dihydroartemisin and piperquine to daily co-trimoxazole is more effective at preventing malaria infection than monthly placebo plus daily co-trimoxazole in pregnant women living with HIV. Findings From November 11, 2019, to August 3, 2021, 904 women were enrolled and randomly assigned to co-trimoxazole plus dihydroartemisin and piperquine, N equals 448, or co-trimoxazole plus placebo. N equals 456, of whom 895, 99%, contributed to the primary analysis, cotrimoxazole plus dihydroartemisin and piperquine, N equals 443, cotrimoxazole plus placebo, N equals 452. 
The cumulative risk of any malaria infection during pregnancy or delivery was lower in the cotrimoxazole plus dihydroartemisinin and piperquine group than in the cotrimoxazole plus placebo group, 31,7% of 443 women versus 70, 15% of 452 women, risk ratio 0 middle dot 45, 95% C0 middle dot 30 to 0 middle dot 67, P equals 0 middle dot 0001. The incidence of any malaria infection during pregnancy or delivery was 25 middle.4 per 100 person years in the cotrimoxazole plus dihydroartemisinin and piperquine group versus 77 middle.3 per 100 person years in the cotrimoxazole plus placebo group. Incidence rate ratio 0 middle.32, 95% C0 middle.22 to 0 middle.47, P less than 0 middle.0001. The number needed to treat to avert one malaria infection per pregnancy was 7, 95% C5 to 10. The incidence of serious adverse events was similar between groups and mothers, 17 middle.7 per 100 person years in the co-trimoxazole plus dihydroartemisinin and piperquine group, 23 events, versus 17 middle.8 per 100 person years in the co-trimoxazole group, 25 events, and infants, 45 middle.4 per 100 person years, 23 events, versus 40 middle.2 per 100 person years, 21 events. Nausea within the first four days after the start of treatment was reported by 29, 7% of 446 women in the cotrimoxazole plus dihydroartemisinin and piperquine group versus 12, 3% of 445 women in the cotrimoxazole plus placebo group. The risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes did not differ between groups. Interpretation Addition of monthly intermittent preventive treatment with dihydroartemisinin and piperquine to the standard of care with daily unsupervised co-trimoxazole in areas of high antifolate resistance substantially improves malaria chemoprevention in pregnant women living with HIV on dalutegravir-based CART and should be considered for policy. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. DNA mutational profiling in patients with colorectal cancer treated with standard of care reveals differences in outcome and racial distribution of mutations. CALG, Alliance SWAG 80405 was a randomized phase 3 trial that in first-line patients with metastatic colorectal cancer, MCRC, treated with bevacizumab or cetuximab with chemotherapy. We aim to discover novel mutated genes associated with prognosis and differential response to therapy with the biologics. Methods Primary tumor DNA from 548 patients was sequenced using Foundation 1. The effect of mutated genes and mutations on overall survival, OS, was tested adjusting for microsatellite instability status, RAF-V600E, all RAS mutations, ARM, sex, and age. Results the median number, lower upper quartile, of mutated genes was 5, 3 to 7, 5, 3 to 6, in microsatellite stable and 12.5, 4.5 to 32, in microsatellite instability high tumors. Mutated CRAS and APC were more frequent in black, 53% and 85%, than white, 27% and 65%, respectively, patients while BRAF V600E was less frequent in black, 5%, than white. 14% patients. The median OS in patients with BRAF non-D600E, 2.2% of patients, was 31.9 months, 
95% C, 15.1 to not applicable, NA, similar to that of BRAF wild type, weight, patients, 31.2 months, 95% C, 29.0 to 33.9. Mutated LRP1B, 10.7% of patients, was associated with improved OS compared with weight LRP1B, hazard ratio, 0.57, 95% C, 0.40 to 0.80. RNF43, 5.6% of patients, interacted with treatment arms as, in the cetuximab arm, patients with mutated RNF43 had a median OS of 11.5, 95% C, 10.8 to NA, months compared with 30.1, 95% C, 24.9 to 35.3, months in patients with weight RNF43, whereas in the bevacizumab arm, patients with mutated RNF43 had a median OS of 25.0, 95% C, 14.2 to NA, months compared with 31.3, 95% C, 29.0 to 34.3, months in patients with weight RNF 43. Conclusion These results can provide new tools to predict patient outcome and improve therapeutic decisions and trial participation in patient minorities. The molecular alterations identified in this study may direct biomarker-driven studies. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology. Defining small intestinal bacterial overgrowth by culture and high throughput sequencing. Background and aims. Despite accelerated research in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, questions remain regarding optimal diagnostic approaches and definitions. Here, we aim to define SIBO using small bowel culture and sequencing, identifying specific contributory microbes, in the context of gastrointestinal symptoms. Methods Subjects undergoing esophagogastrodudinoscopy, without colonoscopy, were recruited and completed symptom severity questionnaires. Duodenal aspirates were plated on McConkie and blood agar. Aspirate DNA was analyzed by 16S ribosomal RNA and shotgun sequencing. Microbial network connectivity for different SIBO thresholds and predicted microbial metabolic functions were also assessed. Results A total of 385 subjects with less than 103 colony forming units, CFU per milliliter on McConkie agar and 98 subjects with greater than or equal to 103 CFU per milliliter, including greater than or equal to 103 to less than 105 CFU per milliliter and equals 66 and greater than or equal to 105 CFU per milliliter, and equals 32 were identified. Duodenal microbial alpha diversity progressively decreased, and relative abundance of Escherichia slash Shigella and Klebsiella increased, in subjects with greater than or equal to 103 to less than 105 CFU per milliliter and greater than or equal to 105 CFU per milliliter. Microbial network connectivity also progressively decreased in these subjects, driven by the increased relative abundance of Escherichia, p less than 0.0001, and Klebsiella, p equals 0.0018. Microbial metabolic pathways for carbohydrate fermentation, hydrogen production, and hydrogen sulfide production were enhanced in subjects with greater than or equal to 1 of 3 CFU per milliliter and correlated with symptoms. Shotgun sequencing, N equals 38, 
identified two main Escherichia coli strains and two Klebsiella species representing 40.24% of all duodenal bacteria in subjects with greater than or equal to 103 CFU per milliliter. Conclusions Our findings confirm greater than or equal to 103 CFU per milliliter is the optimal SIBO threshold, associated with gastrointestinal symptoms, significantly decreased microbial diversity, and network disruption. Microbial hydrogen and hydrogen sulfide-related pathways were enhanced in SIBO subjects, supporting past studies. Remarkably few specific E. coli and Klebsiella strain-slash-species appear to dominate the microbiome in SIBO, and correlate with abdominal pain, diarrhea, and bloating severities. Association of renin-angiotensin system inhibition with liver-related events and mortality and compensated cirrhosis. Background and aims. While renin-angiotensin system inhibition lowers the hepatic venous gradient, the effect on more clinically meaningful endpoints is less studied. We aim to quantify the relationship between renin-angiotensin system inhibition and liver-related events, LREs, among adults with compensated cirrhosis. Methods. In this national cohort study using the Optum database, we quantified the association between angiotensin-converting enzyme, ACE, inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker, ARB, use in LREs, hepatocellular carcinoma, liver transplantation, ascites, hepatic encephalopathy, or variceal bleeding, among patients with cirrhosis between 2009 and 2019. Selective beta blocker, SBB, users served as the comparator group. We used demographic and clinical features to calculate inverse probability treatment weighting weighted cumulative incidences, absolute risk differences, and Cox proportional hazard ratios. Results Among 4,214 adults with cirrhosis, 3,155 were ACE inhibitor ARB users and 1,059 were SBB users. In inverse probability treatment weighting weighted analyzes, ACE inhibitor ARB, versus SBB, users had lower 5-year cumulative incidence, 30.6%, 95% confidence interval, C, 27.8% to 33.2%, versus 41.3%, 95% C, 34.0% to 47.7%, absolute risk difference, minus 10.7%, 95% C, minus 18.1% to minus 3.6%, and lower risk of LREs, adjusted hazard ratio R, 0.69, 95% C, 0.60 to 0.80. There was a dose-response relationship, compared with SBB use, ACE inhibitor slash ARB prescriptions greater than or equal to one defined daily dose, R, 0.65, 95% C, 0.56 to 0.76, were associated with a greater risk reduction compared with less than one defined daily dose, R, 0.87, 95% C, 0.71 to 1.07. Results were robust across sensitivity analyzes such as comparing ACE inhibitor slash ARB users with non-users and as treated analysis. Conclusions In this national cohort study, ACE inhibitor slash ARB use was associated with significantly lower risk of LREs in patients with compensated cirrhosis. These results provide support for a randomized clinical trial to confirm clinical benefit.
Next article from Clinical Liver Disease. Screening for hepatitis C is part of an opioid stewardship quality improvement initiative, identifying infected patients and analyzing linkage to care. Screening patients with opioid use disorder, OUD, for HCV can potentially decrease morbidity and mortality if HCV-infected individuals are linked to care. We describe a quality improvement initiative focused on patients with OUD, incorporating an electronic health record decision support tool for HCV screening across multiple healthcare venues, and examining the linkage to HCV care. Of 5,829 patients with OUD, 4,631 were tested for HCV, 79.4%, compared to a baseline of 8%, and 1,614, 27.7%, tested positive. 230 patients had died at the study onset. Patients tested in the acute care and emergency department settings were more likely to test positive than those in the ambulatory setting, or equals 2.21 and 2.49, p less than 0.001. Before patient outreach, 279, 18.2%, HCV-positive patients were linked to care. After patient outreach, 326, 23.0%, total patients were linked to care. Secondary endpoints included mortality and the number of patients who were HCV positive who achieved a cure. The mortality rate in patients who were HCV positive, 12.2%, was higher than that in patients who were HCV negative, 7.4%, or equals 1.72, p less than 0.001, or untested patients, 6.2%, or equals 2.10, p less than 0.001. Of the 326 with successful linkage to care, 113, 34.7%, had a documented cure. An additional 55, 16.9%, patients had a possible cure, defined as direct acting antiviral ordered but no follow-up documented, known treatment in the absence of documented sustained viral response lab draw or documentation of cure noted in outside medical records but unavailable laboratory results. A strategy utilizing electronic health record decision support tools for testing patients with OOD for HCV was highly effective, however, linking patients with HCV to care was less successful. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology. Genetic Influence on Osteoarthritis versus Other Rheumatic Diseases. Objective. We aim to compare the genetic contribution to osteoarthritis, OA, versus other rheumatic-slash-musculoskeletal diseases, RMDs, in the same population and to explore the role for any shared genetics between OA and other RMDs. Methods. In 59,970 Swedish twins aged 35 years or older, we estimated the heritability, the variance explained by genetic factors, of OA in peripheral joints, back and neck pain, shoulder pain, adhesive capsulitis, impingement syndrome, etc., rheumatoid arthritis, spondyloarthritis, spa and psoriatic arthritis, myalgia, and osteoporosis diagnosed in specialist and inpatient care. We also studied how much covariance between OA and each of the RMDs could be explained by genetics by studying phenotypic correlations in bivariate classical twin models. Results Any site OA and HIP OA, 50% and 64%, were among the most heritable RMDs, as compared with 23% for fibromyalgia, lowest, 
and 63% for SPA highest. The highest phenotypic correlations were between OA, any joint site, and shoulder pain in the same individual, R equals 0.33, 95% confidence interval 0.31 to 0.35, of which 70%, 95% confidence interval 52 to 88, could be explained by shared genetics. The phenotypic correlation between OA and backslash neck pain was R equals 0.25, with 25% to 75% explained by genetics. Phenotypic correlations between OA and each of the other RMDs were lower, R0.1 to R0.2, with inconclusive sources of variation. Conclusion OA has relatively large heritability as compared with other RMDs. The coexistence of OA and shoulder pain, as well as back pain, was common and could often be explained by genetic factors. Findings imply similar etiologies of OA and several pain conditions. Next article from Circulation Associations between end-tidal carbon dioxide during pediatric cardiopulmonary resuscitation, cardiopulmonary resuscitation quality, and survival. Background Supported by laboratory and clinical investigations of adult cardiopulmonary arrest, resuscitation guidelines recommend monitoring end-tidal carbon dioxide, ECO2, as an indicator of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, quality but they note that specific values to guide therapy have not been established in children. Methods This prospective observational cohort study was a National Heart, Lung and Blood Institute-funded ancillary study of children in the ICU Resus Trial, Intensive Care Unit Resuscitation Project, NCT 02837497. Hospitalized children, less than or equal to 18 years of age and greater than or equal to 37 weeks postgestational age, who received chest compressions of any duration for cardiopulmonary arrest, had an endotracheal or tracheostomy tube at the start of CPR, and evaluable intra-arrest ECO2 data were included. The primary exposure was event-level average ECO2 during the first 10 minutes of CPR, dichotomized as greater than or equal to 20 mHg versus less than 20 mm Hg on the basis of adult literature. The primary outcome was survival to hospital discharge. Secondary outcomes were sustained return of spontaneous circulation, survival to discharge with favorable neurological outcome, and new morbidity among survivors. Poisson regression measured associations between ECO2 and outcomes as well as the association between ECO2 and other CPR characteristics, 1. Invasively measured systolic and diastolic blood pressures, and 2. CPR quality and chest compression mechanics metrics, e. Time to CPR start chest compression rate, depth, and fraction, ventilation rate. Results Among 234 included patients, 133, 57%, had an event-level average ECO2 greater than or equal to 20 mHg. After controlling for a priori covariates, average ECO2 greater than or equal to 20 mHg was associated with a higher incidence of survival to hospital discharge, 86133, 65%, versus 48101, 48%, adjusted relative risk, 1.33, 95% C, 1.04 to 1.69, P equals 0.023, and return of spontaneous circulation, 95133, 71%, versus 59101, 
Adjusted Relative Risk, 1.22, 95% C, 1.00 to 1.49, P equals 0.046, compared with lower values. ECO2 greater than or equal to 20 mHg was not associated with survival with favorable neurological outcome or new morbidity among survivors. Average 2 greater than or equal to 20 mHg was associated with higher systolic and diastolic blood pressures during CPR, lower CPR ventilation rates, and briefer pre-CPR restorations compared with lower values. Chest compression rate, depth, and fraction did not differ between ECO2 groups. Conclusions In this multicenter study of children with in-hospital cardiopulmonary arrest, ECO2 greater than or equal to 20 mHg was associated with better outcomes and higher intra-arrest blood pressures, but not with chest compression quality metrics. From Journals of the American College of Cardiology Universal Risk Prediction for Individuals with and Without Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease Background American College of Cardiology slash American Heart Association guidelines recommend distinct risk classification systems for primary and secondary cardiovascular disease prevention. However, both systems rely on similar predictors, e.g., age and diabetes, indicating the possibility of a universal risk prediction approach for major adverse cardiovascular events, MESAs. Objectives The authors examined the performance of predictors in persons with and without atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, ESCADE, and developed and validated a universal risk prediction model. Methods Among 9,138 ERIC, atherosclerosis risk in communities, participants with, N equals 609, and without, N equals 8,529, ESCADE at baseline, 1996-1998. We examined established predictors in the risk classification systems and other predictors, such as body mass index and cardiac biomarkers, troponin and natriuretic peptide, using COX models with MESAs, myocardial infarction, stroke, and heart failure. We also evaluated model performance. Results Over a follow-up of approximately 20 years, there were 3,209 MESAs, 2,797 for no prior escape. Most predictors showed similar associations with MACE regardless of baseline escape status. A universal risk prediction model with the predictors, e.g., established predictors, cardiac biomarkers, identified by least absolute shrinkage and selection operator regression and bootstrapping showed good discrimination for both groups, see statistics of 0.747 and 0.691, respectively and risk classification and showed excellent calibration, irrespective of escape status. This universal prediction approach identified individuals without escape who had a higher risk than some individuals with escape and was validated externally in 5,322 participants in the MESA, multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis. Conclusions A universal risk prediction approach performed well in persons with and without escape. This approach could facilitate the transition from primary to secondary prevention by streamlining risk classification and discussion between clinicians and patients. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. 
Thyroid cancer polygenic risk score improves classification of thyroid nodules as benign or malignant GIDA. Context Thyroid nodule ultrasound-based risk stratification schemas rely on the presence of high-risk sonographic features. However, some malignant thyroid nodules have benign appearance on thyroid ultrasound. New methods for thyroid nodule risk assessment are needed. Objective We investigated polygenic risk score, PRS, accounting for inherited thyroid cancer risk combined with ultrasound-based analysis for improved thyroid nodule risk assessment. Methods The convolutional neural network classifier was trained on thyroid ultrasound still images and cine clips from 621 thyroid nodules. Phenome-wide association study, FIWAS, and PRSV was reused to optimize PRS for distinguishing benign and malignant nodules. PRS was evaluated in 73,346 participants in the Colorado Center for Personalized Medicine Biobank. Results When the deep learning model output was combined with thyroid cancer PRS and genetic ancestry estimates, the area under the receiver operating characteristic curve, OROC, of the benign versus malignant thyroid nodule classifier increased from 0.83 to 0.89 to long, p-value equals 0.007. The combined deep learning and genetic classifier achieved a clinically relevant sensitivity of 0.95, 95% C, 0.88 to 0.99, specificity of 0.63, 0.55 to 0.70 and positive and negative predictive values of 0.47. 0.41 to 0.58, and 0.97, 0.92 to 0.99, respectively. ORAC improvement was consistent in European ancestry stratified analysis, 0.83 and 0.87 for deep learning and deep learning combined with PRS classifiers, respectively. Elevated PRS was associated with a greater risk of thyroid cancer structural disease recurrence, ordinal logistic regression, p-value equals 0.002. Conclusion Augmenting ultrasound-based risk assessment with PRS improves diagnostic accuracy. Next article from Neurology Hospitalizations and mortality from myasthenia gravis, trends from two U.S. national datasets. Background and Objectives Myasthenia gravis, MG, is a rare neuromuscular disorder where antibodies damage the communication between nerves and muscles, leading to muscle weakness that can be severe and have a significant impact on patients' lives. MG exacerbations include myasthenic crisis with respiratory failure, the most serious manifestation of MG. Recent studies have found MG prevalence increasing, especially in older patients. This study examined trends in hospital admissions and in-hospital mortality for adult patients with MG and readmissions and post-discharge mortality in older, 65 years or older, adults with MG. Methods Data from the Nationwide Inpatient Sample, NIS and All-Payer National Database of Hospital Discharges, were used to characterize trends in hospitalizations and in-hospital mortality related to MG exacerbations and MG crisis among adult patients aged 18 years or older. The Medicare Limited Data Set, a de-identified, longitudinal research database with demographic, enrollment, and claims data was used to assess hospitalizations, length of stay, LOS, 
readmissions, and 30-day post-discharge mortality among fee-for-service Medicare beneficiaries aged 65 years or older. The study period was 2010 to 2019. Multinomial logit models and Poisson regression were used to test for significance of trends. Results Hospitalization rates for 19,715 unique adult patients and 56,822 admissions increased from 2010 to 2019 at an average annualized rate of 4.9%, MG non-crisis, 4.4%, MG crisis, 6.8%, all P less than 0.001. Readmission rates were approximately 20% in each study year for both crisis and non-crisis hospitalizations. The in-hospital mortality rate averaged 1.8%. Among patients aged 65 years or older, annualized increases in hospitalizations were estimated at 5.2%, 4.2%, and 7.7% for all non-crisis and crisis hospitalizations, respectively, all p less than 0.001. The average loss was stable over the study period, ranging from 11.3 to 13.1 days but was consistently longer for MG crisis admissions. Mortality among patients aged 65 years or older was higher compared with that in all patients, averaging 5.0% across each of the study years. Discussion Increasing hospitalization rates suggest a growing burden associated with MG, especially among older adults. While readmission and mortality rates have remained stable, the increasing hospitalization rates indicate that the raw numbers of readmissions and deaths are also increasing. Mortality rates are considerably higher in older patients hospitalized with MG. Safety and efficacy of nipocolimab in patients with generalized myasthenia gravis Results from the Randomized Phase 2 Vivacity MG Study Background and Objectives To evaluate in a Phase 2 study the safety and efficacy of 4-nipocalimab, a fully human, antineonatal FC receptor monoclonal antibody, in patients with generalized myasthenia gravis, GMG. Methods Patients with GMG with inadequate response to stable standard of care, SOC, therapy were randomized 1 to 1 colon 1 to 1 colon 1 to receive either 4 placebo every 2 weeks, Q2W, or 1 of 4 4 nipocalimab treatments, 5 mg slash kg once every 4 weeks, Q4W, 30 mg slash kg Q4W, 60 mg slash kg Q2W each for 8 weeks, or a 60 mg slash kg single dose, in addition to their background soak therapy. Infusions, Placebo or nipocalimab, or Q2W in all groups to maintain blinding. The primary safety endpoint was incidence of treatment emergent adverse events, TEs, including serious adverse events and adverse events of special interest. The primary efficacy endpoint was changed from baseline to day 57 in myasthenia gravis activities of daily living, MGADL, total scores. Dose responsive change at day 57 was analyzed with a linear trend test over the placebo. Nipocalimab 5 mg slash kg Q4W, Nipocalimab 30 mg slash kg Q4W, and Nipocalimab 60 mg slash kg Q2W groups. Results 68 patients, Nipocalimab, N equals 54, placebo, N equals 14, were randomized, 64 patients, 94.1%, 
were positive for anti-acetylcholine receptor autoantibodies and for patients, 6%, were positive for antimuscle-specific tyrosine kinase autoantibodies. 57 patients, 83.8%, completed treatment through day 57. The combined Nipakalimab group compared with the placebo group demonstrated similar incidences of Ts, 83.3% versus 78.6%, respectively, and infections, 33.3% versus 21.4%, respectively. No deaths or discontinuations due to Ts and no Ts of special interest, grade greater than or equal to 3 infection or hypoalbuminemia, were observed with Nipakalimab treatment. A statistically significant dose response was observed for change from baseline in MGADL at 57, P equals 0.031, test of linear trend. Discussion Nipakalimab was generally safe, well-tolerated and showed evidence of dose-dependent reduction in MGADL scores at day 57 in this phase 2 study. These results support further evaluation of Nipakalimab for the treatment of GMG. Next article from CHEST. Glycated hemoglobin trajectories and their association with treatment outcomes among patients with pulmonary TB in India. Background. Transient hyperglycemia is seen commonly during TB treatment, yet its association with unfavorable treatment outcomes is unclear. Research question. Does an association exist between glycated hemoglobin, PUB1C, trajectories and TB treatment outcomes? Study design and methods. Adults with pulmonary TB were evaluated prospectively for 18 months after the second of a 1C measurement. Of a 1C trajectories during the initial three months of treatment were defined as follows, persistent euglycemia, a 1C less than 6.5% at baseline and three-month follow-up, persistent hyperglycemia, a 1C greater than or equal to 6.5% at baseline and three-month follow-up, transient hyperglycemia, a 1C greater than or equal to 6.5% at baseline and less than 6.5% at three-month follow-up, incident hyperglycemia, a 1C less than 6.5% at baseline and greater than or equal to 6.5% at three-month follow-up. Multivariable Poisson regression was used to measure the association between the 1C trajectories and unfavorable treatment outcomes of failure, recurrence, and all-cause mortality. Results Of the 587 participants, 443 participants, 76%, had persistent euglycemia, 118 participants, 20%, had persistent hyperglycemia, and 26 participants, 4%, had transient hyperglycemia. One participant had incident hyperglycemia and was excluded. Compared with participants with persistent euglycemia, those with transient hyperglycemia showed a two-fold higher risk of experiencing an unfavorable treatment outcome, adjusted incidence rate ratio, AIR, 2.07, 95% C, 1.04 to 4.15, after adjusting for confounders including diabetes treatment, and BMI, we did not find a significant association with persistent hyperglycemia, AIR, 1.64, 95% C, 0.71 to 3.79. Diabetes treatment was associated with a significantly lower risk of unfavorable treatment outcomes, AIR, 0.38, 95% C, 0.15 to 0.95. Interpretation. 
transient hyperglycemia and lack of diabetes treatment was associated with a higher risk of unfavorable treatment outcomes in adults with pulmonary TB. Peripheral Administration of Norepinephrine A Prospective Observational Study Background Historically, norepinephrine has been administered through a central venous catheter, CVC, because of concerns about the risk of ischemic tissue injury if extravasation from a peripheral 4 catheter, PIVC, occurs. Recently, several reports have suggested that peripheral administration of norepinephrine may be safe. Research Question can a protocol for peripheral norepinephrine administration safely reduce the number of days a CVC is in use and frequency of CVC placement? Study Design and Methods This was a prospective observational cohort study conducted in the medical ICU at a Quaternary Care Academic Medical Center. A protocol for peripheral norepinephrine administration was developed and implemented in the medical ICU at the study site. The protocol was recommended for use in patients who met pre-specified criteria, but was used at the treating clinician's discretion. All adult patients admitted to the medical ICU receiving norepinephrine through a PIF from February 2019 through June 2021 were included. Results The primary outcome was the number of days of CVC use that were avoided per patient, and the secondary safety outcomes included the incidence of extravasation events. 635 patients received peripherally administered norepinephrine. The median number of CVC days avoided per patient was 1, interquartile range, 0 to 2 days per patient. Of the 603 patients who received norepinephrine peripherally as the first norepinephrine exposure, 311 patients, 51.6%, never required CVC insertion. Extravasation of norepinephrine occurred in 35 patients, 75.8 events slash 1,000 D of PIF confusion, 95% C, 52.8 to 105.4 events slash 1,000 D of PIF confusion. Most extravasations caused no or minimal tissue injury. No patient required surgical intervention. Interpretation This study suggests that implementing a protocol for peripheral administration of norepinephrine safely can avoid one CDC day in the average patient with 51.6% of patients not requiring CVC insertion. No patient experienced significant ischemic tissue injury with the protocol used. These data support performance of a randomized, prospective, multicenter study to characterize the net benefits of peripheral norepinephrine administration compared with norepinephrine administration through a CVC. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Blood-based transcriptomic and proteomic biomarkers of emphysema. Rationale, emphysema is a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease phenotype with important prognostic implications. Identifying blood-based biomarkers of emphysema will facilitate early diagnosis and development of targeted therapies. Objectives, to discover blood omics biomarkers for chest-computed tomography-quantified emphysema and develop predictive biomarker panels. Methods, emphysema blood biomarker discovery was performed using differential gene expression, alternative splicing, and protein association analyzes in a training sample of 2,370 COP gene participants with available blood RNA sequencing, 
plasma proteomics, and clinical data. Internal validation was conducted in a COP gene testing sample, N equals 1016, and external validation was done in the Eclipse study, N equals 526. Because low body mass index, BMI and emphysema often co-occur, we performed a mediation analysis to quantify the effect of BMI on gene and protein associations with emphysema. Elastic net models with bootstrapping were also developed in the training sample sequentially using clinical, blood cell proportions, RNA sequencing, and proteomic biomarkers to predict quantitative emphysema. Model accuracy was assessed by the area under the receiver operating characteristic curves for subjects stratified into turtles of emphysema severity. Measurements and main results, totals of 3,829 genes, 942 isoforms, 260 exons, and 714 proteins were significantly associated with emphysema, false discovery rate, 5%, and yielded 11 biological pathways. 74% of these genes and 62% of these proteins showed mediation by BMI. Our prediction models demonstrated reasonable predictive performance in both COP gene and Eclipse. The highest performing model used clinical, blood cell, and protein data, area under the receiver operating characteristic curve in COP gene testing, 0.90, 95% confidence interval, 0.85 to 0.90. Conclusions Blood transcriptome and proteome-wide analyzes revealed key biological pathways of emphysema and enhance the prediction of emphysema. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Defining small intestinal bacterial overgrowth by culture and high-throughput sequencing. Background and aims. Despite accelerated research in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, questions remain regarding optimal diagnostic approaches and definitions. Here, we aim to define SIBO using small bowel culture and sequencing, identifying specific contributory microbes, in the context of gastrointestinal symptoms. Methods Subjects undergoing esophagogastridu denoscopy, without colonoscopy, were recruited and completed symptom severity questionnaires. Duodenal aspirates were plated on McConkie and blood agar. Aspirate DNA was analyzed by 16S ribosomal RNA and shotgun sequencing. Microbial network connectivity for different SIBO thresholds and predicted microbial metabolic functions were also assessed. Results A total of 385 subjects with less than 103 colony forming units CFU per milliliter on McConkie agar and 98 subjects with greater than or equal to 103 CFU per milliliter, including greater than or equal to 103 to less than 105 CFU per milliliter and equals 66, and greater than or equal to 105 CFU per milliliter and equals 32 were identified. Duodenal microbial alpha diversity progressively decreased, and relative abundance of Escherichia slash Shigella and Klebsiella increased, in subjects with greater than or equal to 103 to less than 105 CFU per milliliter and greater than or equal to 105 CFU per milliliter. Microbial network connectivity also progressively decreased in these subjects, driven by the increased relative abundance of Escherichia, P less than 0.0001, and Klebsiella, P equals 0.0018. Microbial metabolic pathways for carbohydrate fermentation, 
hydrogen production, and hydrogen sulfide production were enhanced in subjects with greater than or equal to 103 CFU per milliliter and correlated with symptoms. Shotgun sequencing, N equals 38, identified two main Escherichia coli strains and two Klebsiella species representing 40.24% of all duodenal bacteria in subjects with greater than or equal to 103 CFU per milliliter. Conclusions Our findings confirm greater than or equal to 103 CFU per milliliter is the optimal SIBO threshold, associated with gastrointestinal symptoms, significantly decreased microbial diversity, and network disruption. Microbial hydrogen and hydrogen sulfide-related pathways were enhanced in SIBO subjects, supporting past studies. Remarkably few specific E. coli and Klebsiella strains-slash-species appear to dominate the microbiome in SIBO, and correlate with abdominal pain, diarrhea, and bloating severities. Age-Dependent Female Survival Advantage in Hepatocellular Carcinoma, a Multicenter Cohort Study Background and Names Hepatocellular Carcinoma, HCC, has a higher incidence in males, but the association of sex with survival remains controversial. This study aimed to examine the effect of sex on HCC survival and its association with age. Methods Among 33,238 patients with HCC from 12 Chinese tertiary hospitals, 4,175 patients who underwent curative intent hepatectomy or ablation were analyzed. Cancer-specific survival, CSS, was analyzed using Cox regression and Kaplan-Meier methods. Two propensity score methods and multiple mediation analysis were applied to mitigate confounding. To explore the effect of estrogen, a candidate sex-specific factor that changes with age, female participants' history of estrogen use, and survival were analyzed. Results There were 3,321 males and 854 females included. A sex-related disparity of CSS was present and showed a typical age-dependent pattern, a female survival advantage over males appeared at the perimenopausal age of 45 to 54 years, hazard risk, HR, 0.77, 5-year CSS, 85.7% versus 70.6%, P equals 0.018, peaked at the early postmenopausal age of 55 to 59 years, HR, 0.57, 5-year CSS, 89.8% versus 73.5%, P equals 0.015, and was not present in the premenopausal, less than 45 years, and late postmenopausal groups, greater than or equal to 60Y. Consistent patterns were observed in patients after either ablation or hepatectomy. These results were sustained with propensity score analyzes. Confounding or mediation effects accounted for only 19.5% of sex survival disparity. Female estrogen users had significantly longer CSS than non-users, HR, 0.74, 5-year CSS, 79.6% versus 72.5%, P equals 0.038. Conclusions A female survival advantage in HCC depends on age, and this may be associated with age-dependent, sex-specific factors. Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. 
Effect of resveratrol on endothelial function in patients with CKD and diabetes, a randomized controlled trial. Background Patients with CKD and diabetes are at higher risk of developing cardiovascular disease, in part, because of impaired endothelial function. Cardioprotective compounds such as resveratrol could improve endothelial function and attenuate the cardiovascular burden in patients with CKD and diabetes. We hypothesize that resveratrol supplementation would improve endothelial function in patients with CKD and diabetes. Methods 28 adults aged 68 plus or minus 7 years, 84% men, with stage 3 CKD and diabetes were enrolled in a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, crossover study to investigate the effects of 6-week resveratrol supplementation, 400 mg d on endothelial function. Endothelial function was determined through brachial artery flow-mediated dilation. Results The mean values for ECFR and hemoglobin A1c were 40 plus or minus 9 ml per minute per 1.73 meters 2 and 7.36% plus or minus 0.72%, respectively. Compared with placebo, resveratrol supplementation increased flow-mediated dilation, ratio of geometric mean changes and 95% confidence interval for between group comparisons, 1.43, 1.15 to 1.77, p-value equals 0.001. ECFR, hemoglobin A1c, BP and nitroglycerin-mediated dilation were unchanged with resveratrol or placebo, p equals 0.15 suggesting the observed change in flow-mediated dilation was likely independent of changes in traditional cardiovascular risk factors. Conclusions Resveratrol supplementation improved endothelial function in patients with CKD and diabetes. Next article is from Kidney International Reports. Implementation of a one-day living kidney donor evaluation program, a qualitative analysis of donor candidate and stakeholder perspectives. Introduction A lengthy donor evaluation process hinders living donor kidney transplantation, LBKT. At the Ottawa Hospital, one-day evaluation process was recently developed, with a goal to accelerate the determination of donor suitability. The major objective of this study was to solicit feedback from donor candidates and key stakeholders who participated in the one-day living kidney donor evaluation process to determine the program's acceptability and factors influencing its implementation elsewhere. Methods Semi-structured interviews were conducted with donor candidates who participated in the one-day living kidney donor evaluation process and with stakeholders who are instrumental to the implementation strategy. Interviews were conducted via video conference or by telephone from May 2022 to December 2022. Directed content analysis was conducted using two unique frameworks for stakeholder and donor candidate interviews. Results Our study included 13 stakeholders and 18 donor candidates, of whom 16, 89%, were women and 7, 39%, proceeded to kidney donation. 18, 100%, perceive the process to be both time-effective and cost-effective, due to reduced travel and missed work time. 13, 72%, felt that the one-day evaluation may accelerate determination of donor suitability. Sequential virtual sessions with a nurse and social worker in advance of the evaluation day were seen as providing critical education and support. 
Among stakeholders, 11, 85%, emphasize donor candidate care and faster candidacy determinations. Conclusion The one-day evaluation process was preferred by most donor candidates, and was perceived as time-effective and cost-effective by most interviewees. An expedited, one-day evaluation may accelerate determination of donor suitability and improve LDKT rates. An artificial intelligence-generated automated algorithm to measure total kidney volume in ADD. Introduction Accurate tools to inform individual prognosis in patients with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, ADD, are lacking. Here, we report an artificial intelligence, AI-generated method for routinely measuring total kidney volume, TKV. Methods An ensemble unit algorithm was created using the NUNET approach. The training and internal cross-validation cohort consisted of all 1.5T magnetic resonance imaging, MRI, data acquired using five different MRI scanners, 454 kidneys, 227 scans, in the cystic consortium, which was first manually segmented by a single human operator. As an independent validation cohort, we utilized 48 sequential clinical MRI scans with reference results of manual segmentation acquired by six individual analysts at a single center. The tool was then implemented for clinical use and its performance analyzed. Results The training or internal validation cohort was younger, mean age 44.0 versus 51.5 years, and the female-to-male ratio higher, 1.2 versus 0.94, compared to the clinical validation cohort. The majority of cystic patients had PKD1 mutations, 79%, and typical disease, Mayo Imaging Class 1, 86%. The median DICE score on the clinical validation data set between the algorithm and human analysts was 0.96 for left and right kidneys with a median TKV error of minus 1.8%. The time taken to manually segment kidneys in the cystic data set was 56, plus or minus 28, minutes whereas manual corrections of the algorithm output took 8.5, plus or minus 9.2, minutes per scan. Conclusion Our AI-based algorithm demonstrates performance comparable to manual segmentation. Its rapidity and precision in real-world clinical cases demonstrate its suitability for clinical application. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.